0: My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st Century. Welcome to Episode 2 of Season 3, which is going out on Christmas Eve. And I have a very special stocking filler for you today. One of the most interesting interviews I have ever recorded about the creative process. And I'm going to invite you to leave your preconceptions at the door for this one. Because when I tell you that my guest, Tyler Hobbs, creates art by writing computer programs, some of you may not be so keen on that idea. It might sound a bit cold and cerebral. Well, if that's your initial reaction, then you're in for a pleasant surprise, because Tyler's art is anything but cold and intellectual. You can see some of Tyler's pictures in the show notes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Tyler. And I encourage you to listen to what he says with an open mind. I have a couple of news items today about previous guests on the show. In season two, I had a great interview with Patricia Van Den Acker of the Design Trust in London about creating a business you are proud of. And you might like to know that Patricia's Dream Plan Do planners for 2019 are now available. These are beautifully designed and printed journals that help you plan the year ahead for your creative business. They include lots of exercises and beautifully laid out planning tools to help you dream big and track your progress through the year. They always sell out quickly, but I believe there are still some available for 2019. So you can get one at dream-plan-do.com. Another great interview in season two was with Daniel Betcher of the Intrepid Wendell Jewelry Salon. Daniel and his team have recently launched a blog at theintrepidwendell.com and that's Wendell, W-E-N-D-E-L-L and an Instagram feed at theintrepidwendell. So do check those out. Not only for the gorgeous photos of the beautiful Wendell creations, Also for the stories behind them. Dan is a very thoughtful and creative guy and there's always a story and a special meaning behind every piece of jewellery he creates. Okay, that's it for this week's news. There is great excitement in our house today. The children are of course beside themselves with anticipation of Santa Later on, I will continue the family tradition, handed on from my dad, who's an opera fan, of playing the opening of La Boheme, where there's a group of bohemian friends waiting for Christmas in their garret, and it's so cold, one of them has to burn the script of his play to keep warm. So it always feels like Christmas when I play that scene. And whether or not you officially celebrate Christmas, I wish you and yours peace and joy this week. And before we get too jolly, I have a few words to say about the surprisingly creative power of envy. Have you ever found yourself looking at one of the rising stars in your field and thinking, what's so special about them? My work's at least as good as theirs. Why are they getting all the attention? It's not a nice feeling, is it? No wonder envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Imagine the misery of living your whole life in this state. But envy is also an opportunity. If you respond to it the right way, it's a gift. Because envy is telling you what you want. Why does desire show up as envy? Sometimes it's because you're working flat out to create the future you want and you haven't made it happen yet. But if you find yourself being surprised by envy, it's probably a sign of suppressed desire. It's telling you you've lost your way a little, you've forgotten what you really want, and you're settling for second best. This kind of envy is that suppressed or forgotten desire raising its head again and looking at someone else and telling you, look, that's what you want. Wouldn't it be great to be the one doing that? I was surprised by envy a few years ago. I was in the audience at a poetry reading and found myself envious of the poets on stage and hypercritical of their poems and their delivery. I could do better than that was the thought that went through my mind. Then I asked myself, so why aren't you doing it? At that moment, I realised I'd been sidelining my own poetry. I had plenty of excuses, of course. I was too busy, I had other things on my plate, I'd get to it someday. But when I looked at it honestly, I realised I could make room for poetry if I gave up other things. And behind all the busyness and excuses, I realised there was a big fear lurking. What if I couldn't do better than that? Well, there was only one way to find out. It was time to start writing again, in earnest. Next time you find yourself envying someone else, even if it's a nasty surprise, take a deep breath and congratulate yourself. Because you just unearthed a big desire, maybe a big ambition. And now you have the opportunity to make it happen. Ask yourself, what do they have that I want for myself? What are they doing that I would like to be doing? How did they get there? And most importantly, what can I start doing today? that will set me on the path I want to follow. When you set out on a creative career, you won't find any of the usual milestones of success. Unlike your friends, who enter traditional jobs, with clear routes to promotion, finely calibrated pay grades, and impressive job titles, there's no career ladder for people like you and me. And there are no clear markers to indicate your progress. If you compare yourself to your friends, it can be easy to feel left behind as they climb higher and higher from promotion to promotion. It's obvious to all the world that their career is going somewhere. Whereas for you, on a bad day, it can feel like you don't have a clue where you're headed. So, how can you chart your course and set yourself up for long term success as a creative? This is the question at the heart of a short book I've written to accompany this podcast. It's called 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. The insights are designed to help you stay true to yourself and your inspiration amid the demands and distractions of 21st century life. They will also help you to win on your own terms by adopting a strategy for success that has nothing to do with the conventional career ladder. And I'm giving you the ebook edition for free. To pick up your free copy of 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash 21insights and download it right away. A few months ago, I was talking to a friend who suggested I check out the artwork of Tyler Hobbs as an example of generative art. It turns out that there's a whole subculture of artists and programmers using computer code to create original art, which they call generative art. It sounded like an interesting idea, but I didn't have any great expectations of the art itself. Then I landed on Tyler's website, and I was entranced by what I saw. There was definitely a futuristic, computerised look and feel to the images, but they also had an evocative, even haunting quality. The atmosphere of the artworks reminded me of some of my favourite ambient and techno music, or science fiction movies like Blade Runner and Metropolis. I was also intrigued to see that quite a few images were marked sold and unavailable. You see, instead of creating an image and printing it multiple times, Tyler is creating one-off original artworks and when a collector buys the work Tyler ships the image with a copy of the program used to create it. The more I looked the more absorbing Tyler's images became. I was also intrigued by his writings about generative art and creativity and questions kept popping into my mind. How exactly do you make this kind of art? Why go to the trouble of writing a program instead of drawing it or using Photoshop to create the images you want? How do you create such emotionally compelling images by writing computer code? What can generative art tell us about the future of art? In the end, I emailed Tyler and asked if he would come on the show so I could ask him these questions and share the answers with you. He kindly agreed, and he gave me a fascinating and very insightful interview. Not only did I learn a lot about Tyler's artistic process, I also found plenty of things I could relate to in my own practice as a poet. If you love futuristic art, or if you're curious about the intersection of technology and human creativity, I'm sure you'll find this conversation as riveting as I did. And if you think computer art sounds a bit cold and cerebral, then I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to hear what Tyler has to say about technology, emotions and creativity in the brave new world of generative art. You'll get a lot more out of this interview if you look at some of Tyler's art as well as listening to him talk. So you can see some of his images in the show notes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm Tyler. And there are lots more images at Tyler's website, which is tylerlhobbs.com. And that's Hobbs with a double B. Tyler, what exactly is generative art?
1: Well, generative art is—it um, can be a little bit tricky to explain sometimes. But kind of the core of generative art is that it's it's pattern and process based. Um, so, in the current day, you're typically going to be creating artwork through programming if, if you're if you're making generative artwork. So, um, for myself, my my artwork is created entirely through programming. Um, I don't. Uh, draw things by hand or, or use um, any sort of Photoshop or uh, mm-hmm. post-editing in any of my work. Um, there's, there's a few exceptions to that, but largely it's done through, through custom computer programming. So um, I sit down and I you know, develop a custom um, algorithm uh, that will generate an image, um, usually with no sort of input. So it's working from a blank state. Um, so that's that's kind of the best description of, of how generative art is typically created these days.
0: So there's no kind of direct manipulation like with a Photoshop or a mouse or a brush or or a scanned image. It's it's you're writing lines of code that then generate the image. Is that right?
1: Precisely. Um, yeah, a lot of people, um, you know, they they sort of. Whenever they see digital artwork, it's it's hard for them to imagine not having interacted with it uh, directly. Um, but but yeah, with generative artwork, you you really give up a certain amount of control um, because you're you're working through a program. And uh, it's it's also important to point out that typically with generative artwork, you're not working towards a single image per se. Um, you're you're developing a program that has kind of the characteristics to where, uh, on average, the images that it outputs uh, will look pretty good. Um, so you're kind of specifying a whole set of aesthetic preferences and, and patterns in a system rather than developing one specific image.
0: So is this why on, on your website you've got a series of similar-looking images?
1: Exactly, yeah. The the program's... Um, That i create tend to involve a lot of randomness and the randomness is used uh, very carefully and very deliberately Um, i might use it um, anywhere from kind of the high level structure of the image in terms of how large um, forms and and shapes are are placed and organized um, all the way down to very fine details you know, kind of little random rough edges and splatters and things like that. Uh, I also use randomness for colors and uh, color selection. So every time that I run the program, I get a different output. And that allows me to do one kind of special thing, which is, you know, I can I can offer multiple images from uh, the same program um, at a little bit of a lower cost um, to keep, uh, my hard work affordable.
0: Okay, so this is interesting. You you run the program, and then there's a random element within that. So you know, when we use the phrase pre-program, we tend to think of it as something as being predefined. But for you, the program is actually a way of of kind of scrambling that and giving up control.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the The randomness is is. Uh, I, I mentioned that the randomness was used. Uh, very carefully it's it's kind of the randomness turns the program into a set of guidelines rather than an exact description of an image mm-hmm. so um, the randomness both helps me to to give up control to some extent and allow things to happen maybe a bit more naturally um, and it also helps for for exploration um, when you give up some of that control uh, the randomness will sometimes present... New ideas that I wouldn't have considered otherwise. So it's it's definitely an an ally in the process.
0: Okay, but we're talking randomness rather than artificial intelligence. You wouldn't you wouldn't say you're creating an AI and using that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, AI is a very different uh, sort of beast from what I'm doing. My programs are, are relatively simple compared to what AI does. My program doesn't. So so AI, you know, kind of. Um, it's trying to build some sort of rough understanding of the problem that it's working on in some sense. And uh, my, my program, um, you know, has, has none of that sort of um, memory uh, or, or understanding that an AI sort of has.
0: And what drew you to generative art rather than the more traditional kind?
1: It was a, an interesting development. So um, I've always really enjoyed um, drawing and painting and uh, did that for, for quite a few years. Um, and, and, you know, studied um, traditional portrait drawing and, and figure drawing and landscapes um, for, for quite a few years. But uh, I also went to uh, university to study computer science. So um, I, I had a very strong uh, computer programming background. And I was uh, doing that as, as a day job at that point. And um, I, I kind of had this awareness that artists are best served by trying to utilize things that are unique to them or that are, are part of their their character or their life experience. Um, and so you try and bring everything to the table that, that you can when you're working on artwork. And for me, it became pretty clear that I should try to involve, uh, you know, the computer or programming in some way. And, uh, it was, that did not immediately lead me to, to generative artwork. I mean, some of my, my first attempts to, to kind of link the two were, were laughably bad, but, um, eventually I, I got the idea that, you know, maybe I could write a program that would generate a painting. And that was sort of the mindset that I had when, um, I, st- I first started making generative artwork. A couple of months um, after that, I, I started to stumble upon, you know, the, the, the generative art uh, community and, and learned that it was uh, sort of already a thing. Um, and, and I very quickly figured out that this was something that was going to work well for me. And I've been pursuing it since then.
0: So you actually came up with the idea and then you realized that other people had developed it independently.
1: Absolutely. And they were doing a much uh, better job than I was doing at the time.
0: So, okay, tell us about the generative art scene. I've, I'd never heard of it until I came across your work. How big is it? Who's in it? What kind of range of
1: work is in it? Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting scene. Um, it's not that large, and it never has been that large. Um, generative art has been around since um, the late 60s um, with some of the earliest uh, computers, computers, uh, usually in, in kind of a, a military or scientific establishment. They were the first generative artists came out of that. And it's um, it, it's never really caught on, um, you know, the kind of the normal art scene hasn't been a huge fan of it. Um, and it's kind of just been a, a weird side project that some um, programmers have done in their spare time. Um, these days, it, it is picking up a bit more. And I think that's primarily be, because of a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the tools are, are much more accessible. So thanks to things like you know open, so, open source software, um, there are a lot uh, better and, and more readily available tools for anybody to start playing around with, with creating generative artwork. Um, and I think the other development is that um, kind of as a consequence of that, or, or as a consequence of, uh, more people having programming experience, um, we start to get, uh, kind of more artists that also know how to program in the mix. And, uh, they, they're starting to, to change, um, change what, what gets created, uh, these days. So, um, generative art, I do feel like it's going through a, a nice uptick, but it's still a, a very small community.
0: Okay. And people are coming at it from both sides. There's the the programmers who are thinking, hey, we could use this to make images. And then there's artists who I guess, whatever art form we have these days, but more and more we're using some kind of digital electronic technology to facilitate or record or publish that. So it's kind of converging from both sides.
1: Absolutely. I I would say it's still uh, usually dominated by programmers deciding to play around with uh, doing something a little bit more fun with programming than than their naval, normal day job allows them to do. Um, but there's, there have always been artists that have, have kind of um, stumbled into this arena as well. So one of the most um, well-known generative artists is, and a guy by the name of um, Manfred Moore. And uh, he was kind of one of the early pioneers and, and he was an artist that um, uh, that kind of entered the space and he had a very different approach from, from the programmers. And so. Um, uh, you know, it, it brings a totally different mindset, um, and which I think is is an awesome and very positive thing. Um, so yeah, people are kind of attacking it from from both
0: ends. And do you need to be able to code? I mean, if I'm a painter listening to this, thinking, "Wow, I'd, I'd like to get into that, but I, I don't know how to write code," is is that going to be a big barrier to entry for
1: me? I would say that. Coding makes a very big difference. Um, there are ways to do it without coding. Um, there are some environments that um, are really a, sort of a type of programming, but maybe in a more visual style rather than textual controls. You have kind of visual controls. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's one option for people who don't know how to program. Um, another is that, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but some elements of, of generative artwork don't really—it doesn't strictly require programming, and you could uh, manually uh, produce some similar results. But um, I got to tell you, the programming is such a powerful tool um, that it makes a, it makes a huge difference if you do know how to program, even if you just know how to program a little bit. It's not—it's honestly not super complicated programming. Um, you don't have to to you know, be a mathematician or, or have a computer science degree in order to do it. It's, it's relatively simple and, but there's, there's kind of a, when you're working through programming, there's a much more natural dialogue between yourself and the computer. You're kind of speaking on the, in the computer's terms and something about, about working that way um, helps, I think helps to explore the possibilities of generative art more fully and, and more naturally.
0: So do you enjoy writing code like in the way a novelist, for
1: instance, might enjoy writing prose? Uh, yeah, I would, I would say it's, it's pretty similar. Um, I'd say, you know, probably novelists have, have uh, parts of their book that just kind of flow out easily, and then they have other parts where they get stuck and have to think about exactly what to write very carefully for, you know, a week straight. Um, I have those same sorts of experience with code. Most of the time it, it comes out pretty naturally. I've, I've been writing code for a long time, and so it's a pretty natural way for me to mm-hmm. to already be thinking about the problem. Um, but yeah, every once in a while there are, you know, the thorny problems as well. that uh, uh, it, It's tough to think about how to write the code uh, correctly. Um, sometimes it's hard to translate uh kind of a visual idea into a program, um, to think about how you might kind of build that up from, from patterns and processes, but, um, yeah, the actual, act actual active writing code is, it feels good to me. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I definitely get in the zone when I'm, when I'm working on these programs.
0: I mean, do you think there could be an analogy with music? I mean, I'm not a musician, so it's always pretty amazing to me to watch a trained musician just pick up a piece of equipment and the technical ability that they've got and the muscle memory and so on, to them it's invisible because it's so finely honed that they're just focused on their emotional expression through the instrument.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There there are a lot of similarities between the two, and I would say it's most similar actually to composing rather than Uh, Playing an instrument, well, okay, yeah, because there's sort of, yeah, there's there's a a level of freedom that you're you're giving up where the final product maybe won't be exactly um, what you have in mind. So you know the composer probably hears their score in a certain way in their head, and then whenever the orchestra actually plays it, things might uh, end up sounding quite a bit different. Um, So there's that sort of difference. The other is that at least I'm imagining, I, I do uh, play some music, but I'm definitely not a, a real composer. I, I have to imagine that they they kind of hear everything working together at once in their head sometimes. And then they have to uh, kind of carefully think about how to break that down into individual uh, parts and patterns and, and components um, that will add up to what they're looking for and Um, there's a there's a lot of similarity in that to how I think about building up a visual image, um, through different elements of a program.
0: Coming back to the the analogy with the score and the composer, it strikes me, maybe you could think of the score as being a, you know, software code for the orchestra.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, there's a certain amount of flexibility in that score that's, it's open for interpretation and, um, some composers, especially, you know, in the, uh, uh, you know, maybe postmodern era of music have, have intentionally left a lot of ambiguity in the score. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do exactly the same thing in my program. The, the ambiguity is there very intentionally.
0: And you know, staying with the idea of intention and, and randomness and unpredictability, do you start off with an image in your mind that you think, okay, I'm going to write a piece of code to produce that? Or is it more open-ended that you write a piece of code and see what comes out? Yeah, I would say it's,
1: it's much more like the latter. Um, I, I certainly never have a, a finished image in mind whenever I'm uh, first beginning a program. Um, at, at best, I, I kind of have um, a technique that I know I want to experiment with or um, maybe I've you know, uh, just wrote another program that turned out pretty well and I have an idea for how I can change that. Um, but for me, it's a very exploratory process. And and the medium really lends itself to that well. So I can, you know, start out by writing a very simple program. I can run it very quickly, see what the output looks like. And if I like it or don't like it, I can go back and change the program and, and run it again accordingly. So um, you know, the output is very mutable. Um so it's it's really easy for me to to experiment with new things. And if I don't like it, I can I can roll back the changes um, pretty easily. And that's not something that every medium has. So I really try to take advantage of that um, by, by working in a very exploratory and, and, and open-minded uh, way. However, I will say um, as far as individual changes uh, to the program go, say I, I you know uh, I want to make a certain visual change to the program. I usually have a pretty good idea about uh, what needs to happen in the code uh, to correspond to that type of visual change. So uh, at this point, I've definitely developed a sense of if I change the program a certain way, this is what it will likely look like. Um, But but it's also easy to kind of escape that that realm and and for me to change the code in a way that I have no idea what's going to come out. And I'll, I'll try that just to see if it happens to be amazing.
0: So when the image comes out, it's a surprise to you.
1: Yes, it's 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 a surprise to a certain extent. Sometimes um, it's a it's a really big surprise. Sometimes um, it's it's along the lines of what I expect, but I, I never could have predicted all the details that are in there.
0: So what's that moment like when you? I mean, how do you first see it? Does it flash up on the screen, or does it
1: come out of the printer, or? Yeah, it flashes up on the screen, um, and that moment. Uh, that moment can be very exciting. Uh, there have definitely been a lot of moments where I make a change not knowing what the output's going to be, and I see the results, and, and suddenly I, I know where this piece is going. Like, uh, it's the aha moment. You know, it clicks um, when I see that image. And, um, you know, since a lot of my work kind of begins by stumbling around in the dark, there's usually that, that kind of one critical change um, that, that really puts the, I see it and then I know what the structure of the work needs to be like. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I love that kind of surprise element of, of creating the work.
0: You see, and I think probably somebody listening to this, whatever their art form is, can almost certainly relate to that. And Because, you know, when you think about writing, creating artwork from computer code, I think the initial Response that a lot of artists might have is, well, isn't that a bit cold? Isn't it a bit cerebral? Isn't it a bit programmatic in, in the bad sense? But what you're describing is very familiar to me as a poet. You know, sometimes you change something and, oh, or, or, or a line comes in or a rhyme pops out and the whole thing looks different. And there's that, I mean, I had the poet Mimi Calvati on last season talking about poetry as discovery. She said, if you know what you're going to write, then it won't be a poem but you go in and you surprise yourself. And what you're describing, I think, is is that kind of aha moment that's probably familiar to creators in all kinds of different fields.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think if you're not going into the work with, with an open mind about what it can be, then um, you're, you're really limiting yourself in, in terms of, you're not trusting your intuitive response, right? You're, Kind of the the pre planning of a work is is a lot more cerebral, and um, when you're actually in the middle of that work, allowing yourself to respond to it and change it as it develops, uh, based on on you know how your 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 soul or your spirit reacts to the work, um, that's that's going to give you a, you know a lot better result, I think. And um, yeah, I, I try to do a generative art the same way. I mean, there's, there's definitely, like you say, it, it is kind of a very, it sounds like a very cold, logical uh, form of artwork and, and I can certainly see how, um, uh, uh, people see it that way or, and how creators can kind of fall into that trap when they're getting started with it. Um, so it, it's, you know, you, you have to learn to, um, not have such a, a firm grasp on everything and uh, allow yourself to explore and allow yourself to react uh, to things and, and just take directions based on your, your gut reaction.
0: Right. And this was my initial response when I first saw your work was just, wow, you know, it's so beautiful and it's so evocative and there's some really haunting imagery in there. And I think, you know, I've read an article on your site where you talk about the importance of evoking an emotional response in generative art I'll link to it in the show notes because and you're quite critical of the generative art scene because you say a lot of it is too cerebral too intellectual can you say a bit more about how on earth do you get that emotion that level of emotion into something that computer
1: generated and programmed in this way yeah I think um just to kind of expand on what you were saying it's um you know given that, that a lot of the the people creating this form of artwork do have a you know an engineering background a math background a, maybe a computer science background um we're very used used to and, and trained to think in in a series of logical clearly defined steps and um, as, as artists know that's not something that, that really tends to work well for artwork. Um, you know, art is is a. It has to be sort of guided by your interior feelings, your your internal response um, to the artwork, and um, so th- in that article, I've, I'm kind of trying to push uh, generative artists to to listen more to that uh, that internal voice, um, and and uh, you know, in my own work, that's something that. I try very hard to do. I, I try to base my judgment and decisions uh, around the work entirely on what my my internal um, reaction is. So, you know, if if it evokes some sort of a, an interesting emotional response in me, that's something I, I want to try and follow. And if the work doesn't do that for me, if it's just, you know, kind of a, a technical display or or something like that, then um, then I know that it's, um, it's kind of failed at, at becoming a meaningful piece of artwork. And it's really easy with something like generative artwork, uh, to get wrapped up in the, in the technical aspect of it, to kind of uh, show off your, your, technical chops. Um, and I mean, a lot of forms of artwork are that way. Certainly I know for, for drawing and painting, it's easy to get uh, pulled into that trap as well. But, um, I think it's, it's always worth it to, to, to take that challenge of, of moving to the next level beyond just uh, technical abilities and, and really try to focus on, on the emotional response and, and in particular your own emotional response to the work. Um, at least that's my, my strategy.
0: The poet Robert Frost once said, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader which is to say, if you're not moved by the writing as you write it yourself, then how on earth is your reader going to be moved? So for you, it's got to have that that emotional reaction for you when you first see that image. Otherwise, it's just not interesting to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think the only emotional reaction that you can really gauge honestly and, and accurately is your own as well. So, you know... Mm-hmm. You, you, even your best friends um, might say ah oh, you know I love the work but you you don't really know for certain if it if it resonates for them and um, and if it does resonate exactly how it resonates for them and so um, just out of out of pure practicality as well um, you have to use your own emotional reaction as a guide because it's the only thing that you've got you know a really clear signal from
0: okay. Tyler, you've given us a really fascinating insight into the process. Let's talk a bit about the end result. Are, I mean, what, what is it that you produce as the artifact? Are these like a, a series of prints or is, is it a one-off artwork in its own right?
1: Yeah, so I, I typically execute the work um, through prints, but I prefer to do single edition prints. So I, I never print the same image more than one time. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of talked earlier about how randomness allows me to uh, to generate multiple different images uh, from the same program. So sometimes it's kind of an an in between. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take one program and generate four different images from it, um, and so I can I can sell those for a lower price than if I could only sell one image from the program. Um, I I also uh, really like to try to work through non uh, print mediums as well so uh, something that's a lot of fun to work with is a pen plotter so for your listeners who may not be aware that's for me uh, and for you <laughs> uh, a pen plotter it's a it's a really simple robot it's kind of a two-axis drawing robot mm-hmm. and so you stick a pen in it um, you give it instructions um, you know for lines to draw and it kind of carries out the whole drawing for you. And of course, this, this has a lot, very different properties from uh, working with a print. Um, like you can't, uh, you know, you can't kind of paint over things when you're talking about a plotter, and you have to be careful about uh, parts of the drawing not going off of the image. Um, but um, that that gives you kind of a, a real world uh, grittiness that you don't get in a print. Um, there's something kind of cool about that. Um, Lately, I've been experimenting with with doing something similar, except um, putting a paintbrush into the plotter instead, and having it mm-hmm. uh, periodically um, dip that brush into paint. So, uh, plotter <laughs> paintings is another thing that uh, I've been working on. Um, and of course, you know, I, I have the option of doing, um, you know, displaying art with digital displays or or a projector, um, but uh, Typically, I, I prefer the experience and, and the appearance of, of a print over, um, you know, a digitally projected image.
0: Okay, so the, most of the time, the end result is what looks like a print that you would you would hang on the wall exactly in your in your home. And did I see somewhere that you include the code when you sell
1: the artwork? Yeah, absolutely, that's correct. Um, I don't I don't typically publish my code, um, mm-hmm. but. I do feel like it's it's an important component of the artwork. Um, whenever somebody uh, you know takes the time to, to appreciate my artwork and, and uh, purchases a piece, I, I feel like they deserve uh, to, to to know and and maybe understand a little bit about the process that went into creating that uh, that image, um, especially because. You know the the image is just one potential output of, of you know billions from this program. So it's kind of a yeah. it's kind of a small sna- snapshot of the program, um, and and so yeah, I consider the the program to be an important part of the artwork, and so I, I include a copy of that um, along with the artwork with any sales. That's something Turner never offered, offered right?
0: <laughs> no. So I mean <laughs> we've talked we've talked a lot about technology, and and it's, it's all quite futuristic. What about artists from the past? Are there, are there any artists that you would say have been a big influence on you or do you see yourself as the latest, you know, iteration of, of any kind of tradition from the
1: past? There are definitely there, there are definitely older traditional influences on me. You know, I, I really enjoy a lot of um, abstract expressionist and mm-hmm. colour-filled paintings. Um, that's kind of what I tend to emotionally react to and so um I, I i feel like i try to capture some of the spirit of that in, in my work um, but there there definitely is a, a lineage of generative art at this point and um i would say you know there's some few there's a few early kind of progenitors of that um, data in some ways you could say played a role in it because data um, started to integrate the use of, of randomness um, mm-hmm. you know john cage used randomness uh when, uh, composing some of his, uh, his scores. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, later on, um, an, an artist by the name, uh, Saul LeWitt started to create, um, uh, work that was, was simply a set of instructions. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, like three or four very, uh, simple instructions, uh, for how to execute a, a, drawing on a wall. And, um, this is sort of a, a form of, of early generative artwork that's uh, not executed by a computer is executed by a human instead. But um, the idea is the same. It's a, a, a simple process or pattern that if you follow it, uh, results in the, the creation of an interesting piece of artwork. Um, so I feel like I've I fallen that um, in that same lineage. And I'm, I'm just trying to, if I'm successful with my work, I, I hope to have expanded the Emotional range of, of generative artwork a little bit,
0: and where do you see this going? I mean, what what's your sense of what the future of generative art might be, or, or the you know the future of art and technology?
1: Well, I could speculate uh, for for a really long time on that on that front, but uh, there's there's a lot of really interesting things in the pipeline. So uh, one of them, and, and of course, you know, new technology always has a big impact on artwork, and that's definitely the case with generative artwork as well. So a couple of the new technologies that I, I think will produce some very interesting artwork one is a uh, vr virtual reality mm-hmm. and i think what could be really cool to see would be uh sort of generative uh 3d sculpture in a vr environment so um
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's uh i mean then so so the the key distinction between sculpture and and um in the real world and sculpture in VR is that you don't have physical limitations anymore. You don't have to think about yeah. uh, the weight of things or the scale of things. And, you know, you know, generative artwork doesn't have to be in 2D. It can be in 3D as well. And, and I think it would be really interesting to see uh, people explore that space of, of generating large scale 3D sculptures that you can walk around and interact with in, in virtual reality. Um, I have no doubt that, that that will be a thing soon enough. And if, if I, you know, was a 3D sort of person. Um, that's what I would be doing. Um, another, another technology that's going to have a really big impact and is is already producing some interesting results is um, uh, something called deep learning. And this is kind of one piece of uh, what you might call AI. It's it's one particular mm-hmm. uh, technique for teaching. Uh, a program something to learn something deep and structural about images in a way that uh, it can also uh, generate um, images based on kind of it's what it's seen in the past. So um, some you may have seen or some of your listeners may have seen um, Google Google released something called the deep dream um, software and it, you can kind of make it um, hallucinate these images that have, like, they're filled with uh, kind of eyes and, like, dogs' faces, and um, uh, they're very, very colorful. And um, I don't know if if, uh, if you've seen this in particular, but...
0: I haven't, but I'll make sure, if, if we can find a link, I'll make sure I link to it in the show notes if you yeah, want
1: to go. It, it yeah, it was very popular when it came out, and I'm sure um, some of your listeners will, will know what uh, I'm referring to. So that's, that's, that's kind of one of the first steps in that, but really the key development is that the programs are starting to understand images in a more structural way. So, um, they, you know, they don't quite know this, but they have a sense of, you know, this is an eye, this is what I sort of look like. This is what the range of what an eye might Uh potentially look like. And so if you, if you sort of ask it to, you know, generate an image of an eye or generate an image of a face, it'll get all the components mostly there and mostly the right place. And um, so it's starting to, to produce some really um, interesting artifacts. And um, right now it's more kind of in the tool building uh, stage right now, but I have, I have no doubt that some really good um, artists will get their hands on that and, and produce some, some really interesting work in the next uh, five years.
0: And just to take that idea for a walk, I mean, if we were to extrapolate from that to AI producing artwork independently, so there was no, it was just the AI was generating it, and there were no human interactions. Do you think that could conceivably be as moving as as a piece created by a human? I mean, you know, what circling back to what we were saying about your own artwork, you know, that that emo, emotional. Appeal of it—it it sounds like it comes from the fact that when you see it, it moves you first of all, and then you will select and put that out there. Do you think humans could find AI-generated art as moving as that, or would it inevitably lose something?
1: That's a—that's uh, an incredibly uh, deep question mark. That's—it's going to be a tough one, but uh, <laughs> I, I have some thoughts on this. So, oh, good, good. Um, so I think. For, an important limitation of ai as it is right now is that it can only uh see and remember what somebody has trained it with so ai is is very much influenced right now by um what data set it's being fed in initially and so in that way um you know the person who's who's developing or controlling the ai has a a very large impact on what it, it produces so ai is very far from being independent right now So, so let's imagine a future where, you know, an AI lives in a robot and it can go around and collect its own, uh, you know, physical, uh, images and, uh, sensory input. And, um, and it's kind of working based on that. I think it's, it's going to be, it's going to be really tough for an AI to produce artwork. If we define artwork as, as being, you know, it's always hard to define artwork, but, if we define artwork as, as kind of being about the human experience in some way, mm-hmm. then just from, from that definition, I don't think an AI is going to, to be able to create a truly new artwork just because it doesn't experience and won't experience the world and, and life in the same way that a human does. Um, but maybe the, the AI can very successfully create artwork that uh, is meaningful to Itself, or to other similar AI, mm-hmm. um, and in that case, it might uh, it might be a very successful artist. But um, yeah, that's, it's it's going to be really interesting if this stuff develops um, to see you know what an AI's idea of artwork is once they can move beyond kind of this the uh, mimicry as the main uh, operation. So I have no idea what that's going to look like. Or how successful it might be, but um, I think it'll give us some interesting insight into ourselves and and um, you know how AI might fundamentally be different from humans.
0: Okay, let's leave that thought hanging out there in the future, and we'll we'll come to it with the progress of technology someday. And um, let's come right back to the present and today, and to what our listener can do based on you know the, the ideas that you've been putting across in today's interview i mean how, it's time for the creative challenge and you know this one was was maybe more challenging than than some given that clearly we're not going to go and ask you to start learning computer code and writing it this week but i think tyler's come up with quite an elegant solution to how we can all get a little bit of taste of generative art so what's your challenge tyler
1: yeah so my challenge is um, like Mark said, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect people to learn programming um, just for a challenge like this, but you can, you can really get um, the spirit of, of generative artwork um, by working through uh, patterns and processes and, and potentially involving randomness. So um, my challenge would be for your listeners to try to create uh, a simple, uh, small, small, Set of instructions uh, that, if you follow them, will result in a piece of artwork being created. So, um, this is sort of like what uh, Saul LeWitt's work was, and maybe I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so, you know, if I was going to write some instructions to produce a drawing, I might say something like Step one, uh, draw a triangle, uh, step two, Uh, split the triangle in half by adding a new line. Uh, Step three, um, you know, repeat from step one for each of the new triangles you produce uh, until the lines get so small you can't fit any more in. So um, there I've I've created a program in some sense. There's only three instructions, but it it sort of loops back on itself, and I can continue doing it until um, I've produced... An interesting uh, result, and you'll notice that the the instructions are kind of ambiguous. You know, the person executing it has quite a bit of leeway as to uh, what type of triangle they draw, how they split it in half exactly, um, and so there's a lot of interesting variation that might come out of the result as well. So, to give you uh, kind of a different example, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you might be able to uh, to produce um, a poem with a certain set of instructions and I'm not a poet. So, um, tell me how, how good or bad this idea might sound, but, um, I'm all ears. <laughs> <laughs> so you might use things like, um, so, so if we can introduce some randomness here, it might be interesting to, to say, um, you know, I've, I've seen, uh, some very simple poems like, or simple rules and poems. Maybe you've seen these same ones where, each uh, successive line has one fewer um, character or syllable than yeah. the line above it. Um, so yeah. that that might be a very uh, simple rule that you can kind of repeat as you um, work on the on the poem. Um, you might also uh, be able to include an instruction with some randomness like you know um, each line uh, uh, has to begin with a randomly um, selected, uh, adjective, for example, or, okay. or maybe you can come up with a rule about um, uh, something about the, you know, the grammatical structure of each line or the the rhythm of each line. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a poet, so it's hard for me to think there's, in that line. There's a
0: whole catalogue of verse forms. You know, you think about, you know, as you're describing this, I'm thinking, well, I guess the Petrarchan sonnet is a kind of <laughs> generative art because it's like, well, it's got to have 14 lines and, you, you know, there's the first eight lines have to put together a proposition and then the last six have to answer it and then the rhyme has to go in a certain pattern and whatever. So, gosh, yeah. maybe I've been doing generative art
1: all along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's a lot more... Uh, in common with with other forms of artwork than than you might think um, and it also reminds me of my friend mick DeLapp
0: when we were working on magma poetry magazine together he published some poems based on the fibonacci sequence mm. where the number of syllables in each line had to was in the you know the i, I don't know what the se- yeah. Fibonacci sure sequence yeah but you take yeah. the numbers of that and then it's the number of syllables in each line yeah, yeah. It gets longer and longer as it goes on, and there's a certain, quite an interesting result. So, yeah, I guess maybe we are more generative than we realize.
1: Yeah, and I, and, and I think you know you'll hear a lot of artists say that um, constraints uh, yield creativity. Absolutely. And um, you know, generative art is is kind of a way of thinking very carefully about those constraints, uh, and so. Okay, that's uh, my hope is that your your listeners will. We'll self-impose some, some interesting constraints and maybe come out with some neat results.
0: This is great, Tyler. So just to sum up, if, as I understand it, it's to write a simple set of instructions or rules to produce a piece of art. And it could be in any medium. Exactly. And maybe it's, is it something that you execute yourself or could you give the instructions to someone else or, or could it be either?
1: Yeah, I mean, it'd be it'd be really interesting uh, if you gave those instructions to somebody else. I mean, I think that would <laughs> that would put you, uh, you know, if you're writing the instructions for yourself, you have maybe have a certain idea about how to execute them. Yeah. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see how somebody else interpreted those and how it differed from from your expectations. And that would let you know if your instructions were actually, uh, you know, really good or not. So, I would highly encourage having somebody else execute it if you can find somebody that will do that for you.
0: So listen, if anybody does this and you want to share the results, then maybe you could paste them or or a link in the the comments to the show notes, because we'd be really interested to see what you come up with. So if you go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, and leave a comment there, um, we would really love to see what you come up with. I think that would be very, very interesting. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Tyler, thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating for me and I'm sure for the listeners as well. Where can we go to find more about you and your work online? Is it tylerhobbs.com? is your website? Is that right?
1: It's a Tyler L Hobbs, just the letter L there in the middle. um, T-Y-L-E-R-L-H-O-B-B-S. So if you just, or if you just Google Tyler Hobbs, um, you'll, you'll find my website as well. That has a link to my Instagram, which is where I tend to post a lot of images. Yeah, um, but yeah, if you if you're interested in some of my writings um, about generative artwork, I have those on my my website as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's really worth. I mean, it's mesmerizing to go and browse through Tyler's site and then read the articles. And people can buy prints direct from the site as well, can't they? That's correct. Right, and the Instagram as well. I heartily recommend to see the the latest stuff that that Tyler is doing. So. Tyler, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely fascinating journey, and we um, really appreciate you taking the time for this.
1: Yeah, Mark, thank thank you. I mean, um, it's I'm glad that more people are starting to to hear about some of the ideas behind generative art work and, and find it exciting. So I really appreciate um, you having me on and and letting me talk about my favorite favorite subject for a while.
0: Great, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.